start off by introducing myself. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Deirdre Chance, and I work for the part of the ministry team. For those of you who do know me, probably know I cry very easily. So if you need someone to cry, you see, I'm your person. However, right before you're about to talk for a half hour, that is not the trait you want to have. Am I doing something wrong? Your microphone's all off. We tried really hard today. Once I got here at 7 this morning, we didn't know. Um, the taste, all of that. 
what an opportunity. I think it probably will go forward. That's my hunch. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but what an opportunity to minister as the church. Um, and then, I think this was actually last week, you're familiar with the triple talaq laws that happen in Arabic and Muslim countries where a husband can simply say three times the Arabic word divorce, talaq, and the divorce is final. There's no legal rights for the woman. So it's now outlawed in India, and Iran is now looking to possibly outlaw it. And most of the time, when I catch my news, it's actually on the NPR when I'm driving, <laughs> not during rush hour, because I don't want to be on the road. I don't have to be at those times. And so at the times that I happen to be listening to NPR, the type of news um, stories that they're doing is they'll invite an expert on to comment on these different news. And then they'll have callers to ask the expert the questions or to give comments. And it's interesting because so many people were able to criticize and to identify and see the problems. And sometimes the host would say, you know, what, what do you think the solution should be? And so often they would say, I, I don't know what the solution is. And you know, just as a Christian, so many of it saddens me. But at some level, I'm not altogether shocked. Because I think about how Genesis 4, one generation, after the fall, there was murder. It didn't take humankind long to spiral into murder, brother against brother, over jealousy. Eight generations after the fall, God was ready to blot out mankind due to our wickedness, the intentions of our thoughts, of our hearts being evil. But before the fall, or excuse me, in Genesis 3, right after the fall, when God is you know, asking Adam and Eve, right then, he promises, he promises to send a child who will overcome the curse, who will overcome the curse and sin. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we learn more, increasingly more, about what this, who this Messiah should be. And it's interesting, I always love the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch ending with Deuteronomy, after all that Levitical law, after all the wandering through the wilderness, after slavery in Egypt, and then um, freedom from slavery, and Moses is on the you know, edge, the crux of the promised land, and he's telling Israel prophetically, you know, there's going to be the blessing and the curse as you enter home, as you enter the promised land, but God's going to circumcise your heart. After all of that, he's saying, God cares about your heart. And in Ezekiel, we learn that we're going to get new hearts under the new law by the Spirit coming in. And so when we get to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew makes it very clear. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's making it very clear that Jesus is that promised one. Jesus is that promised one who's going to break the curse. In the first four chapters, just when he's listing the genealogy, the birth, the start of Jesus' teaching, Matthew is quoting prophecy after prophecy after prophecy to tell this Jewish community Jesus is the promised one. And when Matthew starts to record Jesus' authority of teaching, Jesus' authority over physical ailment and diseases, Jesus' authority over demons and spirits, Jesus' authority even over the natural world, he calms the wind and the seas. He walks 
liquid water. Very exciting. Well, not frozen water. <laughs> and again, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' authority over all our ailments and diseases fulfills prophecy from Isaiah. And then Matthew goes into recording the parables that Jesus teaches. And the disciples straight out ask Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus says, so that only those who seek me will find me. Jesus is saying, I'm concerned about the heart too. Does your heart want to find me? And Matthew's account continues to show how Jesus, like his father, as part of God, is concerned about the heart. The seat of our emotions, our choices, even our intellect and mind would be the heart. And Jesus repeatedly challenges Israel and the interpretation of their law and the Pharisees about trying to do external actions that are totally devoid of the heart, of sincerity of the heart. He quotes Isaiah and he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. And when he gets to chapter 19, where the passage that um, Brad read for us comes from, he records a specific everyday life example of an external action that's devoid of the heart. And it actually ties in so much with what Renee shared. So, Matthew 19.1 starts off with, the Pharisees came up to test Jesus by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any, excuse me, for any cause? And Jesus responds by quoting Genesis 2.24. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So whatever's God joined together, let man not separate. And the Pharisees respond with, well, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. So the certificate was so that a woman could remarry. If she wasn't given a certificate and a man left her, probably with children, and if another man were to take her in as his wife, which was the best option for her financially to be provided for and to survive, was remarriage. If another man took her in and she didn't have this certificate, and she started to accumulate some wealth, some assets, whether that be dependents, land, whatever she might legally have rights to, the first could now come back and reclaim her along with her assets. So the certificate was given so that it was final. So if she didn't get the certificate, if the man just left, just decided, this isn't for me, was possible. She had some kids, and she didn't have a certificate. It wasn't likely that anybody was going to remarry her. And again, remarriage was the best way to be provided for, financially provided for, at that time in society. She may have left. She had no certificate. Her other options for provision might be 
indentured servanthood, place her hood and place herself and her kids into voluntary slavery, basically, indentured servanthood, and then be provided for. That could be an option. Of course, there's also the oldest profession, prostitution. That would be a likely option for her and her kids. So Moses was saying to give the certificate so that hopefully she can be taken care of. But it makes me wonder, I think it would make all of us wonder, you know, how common was divorce and this abandonment, the man just leaving, I'm done, in that society? And I think the first evidence we have is actually biblical in this account right there, when Jesus gives his response that basically you shouldn't divorce except for um, adultery. And the Pharisees say, what? You know, why, did, why would we have this certificate? And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. Then the disciples respond with, who would ever get married then? And there were actually two common thoughts, two common courts of Judaic divorce. One aligned with Jesus, you shouldn't divorce except for adultery. The other, more popular one that men normally went to was sort of a modern no-fault divorce. It was the interpretation of a law in Deuteronomy that says if you're no longer, if your wife no longer finds favor in your eyes, then you can divorce her. So if your wife no longer finds favor in your eyes because another woman finds favor in your eyes, you are free to leave. She burns the soup. That's a common interpretation, too. You could leave her legally. Um, similar to triple law. And in fact, if you read up on historians in ancient literature, they conclude that the societal norms were designed to protect the sexual adventures of men. And it was very rare for a monogamous marriage to not be broken by either death or divorce. So in Judaic culture, the audience that this would have been written to, there were a lot of blended families, a lot of once married women, whether they were widowed, divorced, or separated, probably caring for their own children or maybe other children that were abandoned or orphaned. And even some of the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians may have been addressed to wives who had been slaves um, or had stable relations with pagan men and were technically con concubines that had some legal rights. So I mean, really, if you look at all those societal forces, both within and outside of the church, there were a lot of women who were widowed, divorced, and abandoned, most likely with children. And of course, we also have the biblical um, narrative account of the woman at the well who had five husbands. Well, that might have been, you know, a bit excessive, more, but it certainly did happen in this common. So that's the everyday scene that Matthew chooses to record right before he records this next passage that we read. So the next scene, after this explanation on divorce and abandoned women, probably with children. Then Matthew records, then children were brought to him, that he may lay his hands on them and pray. So I had to think to myself, I wonder what children, what children would have been brought to Jesus? And I was trying to reflect on like, when have I read about this? 
when have I seen this depicted? And I think the time, the only times I can remember that I've read about this or seen this depicted would be children's story Bibles, or maybe Passion Place. And in all of those, it's like these clean, healthy, well-cared-for children come out to Jesus. But I don't think that's the children who were brought to Jesus that the disciples turned away. I think it was those children of put-off lives. Outcast, neglected, abandoned, forgotten children. And it's interesting because actually, if you look at the roots of the Greek word children and slave, they're, they're actually the same. And sometimes theologians have a difficulty in translating it. They have to look at the context. Did this mean slave or did this mean child? So a child, slave, could kind of mean the same. One without rights, you say, ownership. And most often during this time, freeborn children would have been raised with slaves. They would have been nursed by the same wet nurse that we talked about last week. They would have played together. They would have hung out where the slaves were in the house, in the workshop setting, learning the trades so that they could one day oversee. So in some ways, we can interpret this as let the slave, let the servant, let the child, let the one without rights or say over their life come to me. And just as a child of divorce, I find that very comforting. That Jesus notices. Not only does he notice me, not only does he notice Renee and her kids, but he calls you to him. You know, statistically speaking, there's 50% of you that are in the same boat as me and Renee. You've experienced divorce either as a child or a spouse. And there was a little window when my dad left where it wasn't quite clear whether he was going to choose to stay and be a part of our lives. And my mom told me later that my grandmother, his mom, told him, under no circumstances are you not taking care of your kids. My dad's dad had abandoned his family through a shooting. When I was young, they said he was cleaning a hunting gun, I don't know, some kind of gun. As you get older, they tell you it was suicide. You know, it gets hard to tell. Like, well, I've been with this my whole life. Now you're saying this. It was likely suicide. Then my mother and dad worked really hard to provide. And my grandmother, my dad's mom, had been abandoned by her dad. Her mom died from pneumonia when the youngest, the sixth child, was born. And the dad shipped him off to the siblings of what would be my great-grandmother, her mom, grandma's mom, said he was going to go down to Texas to find work and never came back. And again, my grandmother was a hardworking, she's actually half Jewish, into that staunch German-Jewish stoic type of personality, and graduated from high school when she was 16, lied about her age so she could get a job, an apartment, brought her little brother in with her and took care of him. Again, 50% of you have your own stories dealing with divorce. What a comfort that Jesus notices and he calls us to him. Let the little children, those without power, those without control, come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
and he lays his hands on them. So I think we as a church need to ask, what is our response to children? When I just kind of view society, I see two routes. We can devalue children, see them as obstacles, interference to our pursuits, our endeavors, our financial freedoms. And we can do that explicitly, maybe like some Japanese women are starting to do, and just totally renounce marriage, children, the whole thing. Or we can do it a little more passively. We can do it by having kids, but then find programs for them to be in, or screens for them to be on, or doors for them to be behind, so we don't have to really deal with them, which is the devaluing of children. Or the other route we could go is we could turn them into little mini-gods, little idols. And maybe we do that in response to the devaluing of the nuclear family. Or perhaps we do it because we have this sentiment that things were better back then, probably the 1950s. Um, or maybe we turn them into little idols because we find we're pretty good at raising kids. I can have some kids, they're pretty well behaved. I get a lot of accolades and praises in certain circles, especially church circles. And I'll do that because that's where I'm praised and I look good. And maybe I'm put up on a pedestal. Or we might turn them into many gods, little idols, because we want them to have what we didn't have. We want them to have opportunities and freedoms to pursue the American dream. We want them to have opportunities to have what we did have. And I can't remember if it was in the fall or the spring, last fall and this past spring. If you remember those scandals of some affluent parents who were hiring college recruiters to bribe standardized test facilitators so that it looked like their kids got these really high scores on ACTs or SATs. And the kids didn't even know. They really thought they got, you know, 1150s. I don't know ACTs were so well, but SATs. Um, or they just hired, or they bribe, hired these college recruiters who would bribe these um, admissions departments of Ivy League level type schools so that their kids would get in. And it's ironic because, again, social analysts say, you know, they, these families were so affluent who were doing the writing that their kids didn't get into Yale or Harvard. It really wasn't going to affect their success in life. <laughs> but that's what we do as parents. So that we maybe look good. So it's like either route, whichever way we go, the core is still the same problem. It's still our hearts. It's still hard-heartedness. Either we want them out of the way so we can do what we want, or we want them to make us look good. That's not really valuing the children like Jesus values children. And so, what is our heart? What is our attitude? Wanting to live and act in a way so that the children come to Jesus. Butterfield, that I quoted a lot last week in her book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, says that our post-Christian neighbors need to see and hear and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. What would be the outcome of loving and valuing our neighbors 
who are kids. Our neighbors who maybe have a different perspective, a postmodern perspective on life. What would be the point of value in loving them? What would be the value of loving and valuing our own kids who are inundated with postmodernism? Are we living in a way that draws children to Jesus? Are we living in a way that draws the neglected, the forgotten, the abandoned to Jesus? What could possibly be the benefit of having kids around at House Church? Maybe the benefit would be the church would start to live like it's called by the Lord to live, as a household, as a family of God. You know, why, why do we get together in house churches? Why don't we just do a bunch of programs? We get together in house churches so that we can have a meal together, and we can talk together, we can pray together, and we can discuss together. That's what family does. That's what the family of God does. It's more than programs, and programs can be good, but sometimes in our culture, programs are clean and family is messy, and so we lift up the programs to the detriment of relationships. So again, we should ask ourselves, where are our hearts? What do I covet? What do I love? Before, what do I put before caring for children? In what ways am I like the disciples, just trying to send them away, get them out of the way? But I think, quite honestly, it's a little tempting to be like, I have done my job. <laughs> I have raised five kids. <laughs> I'm done. It's somebody else's turn. Maybe we don't want to give up order or organization. Quietness, or finally have this opportunity to go follow this endeavor or whatever. And so unless I happen to find myself with some time and some energy and nothing else going on at the exact moment that somebody needs some help, I'm probably not going to go out of my way to do it. Is our heart, our attitude, wanting to live and act in a way that draws children to Jesus? I think if we're honest, we all at some time have been like this and wanted the kids out of the way. You know, maybe, again, more like some of the women in Japan where we're explicitly, actively rejecting it. Maybe, maybe because we haven't found that spouse that we want in order to have children. Maybe there's a little coveting or victim mentality or self-pitying going on, so we reject other people's kids just say that's not what I'm going to do. Maybe we discard our own kids because we feel overwhelmed, tired, entitled to our own time. We feel limited by our own kids. Maybe we discard other people's kids because their views offend us. I think we all need to admit that at times we act like the disciples and turn them away. When we find ourselves in that place at that moment, we just need to confess.
confess it to God. Just agree with God, that's not your heart. That's not what you want, this is wrong. Admit it, agree with him, and thank him for his forgiveness and cleansing, right? That's what he says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, we'll be faithful to first forgive us and then cleanse us from it. <coughs> then we can repent. We can turn from that action. We can turn from that attitude. We can seek out children. We can seek out our own children. We can seek out children in our house churches, in our church, to love on. You know, again, having children around doesn't limit our witness. It really does enhance it. I can think of examples in my own life. There was a time where Stace worked for the airlines and we could fly around for a really good price. So I've been an exchange student in France. Um, my oldest Caroline was three at the time. My next mate was a year and a half. And so the family I stayed with in France, the oldest gal was getting married. They invited me to the wedding. So I went and my mom flew, came with me. And um, my friend Kathleen, she said to me, in French, well, your bizarre name in any language, she said, yeah. And she's like, we have never seen children like yours. We've never seen a parent like you. She's like, I'm not saying they're not out there. We've just never seen it before. Just seeing me interact with my kids made her ask questions. And I had an opportunity to talk about what was different. Even my dad said, would say the same thing as the kids were older. I think one time we were down there visiting and Nate was um, just playing and being nice and just being kind with um, one of his younger kids' cousins. And my dad turned to me, and if you knew me as a young teenager and child, you would understand why he said that. He turned to me and he said, how could you ever get kids like this? Like, good kids. <laughs> 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 certainly. So, um, you know, again, it was, I think I said, well, anyway, I had an opportunity to talk about um, the Lord and Jesus making a joke. You know, in a real way. That's my dad. You know, I made a joke, but then we talked about faith and who knows. So, again, we can turn. We can see that children aren't, they only make mess, but they're not an obstacle to witness. We can seek out how to draw kids around us to Jesus. Our neighbor kids, our neighbors who are kids. Um, we can seek out who are the outcasts and the abandoned and the neglected in your neighborhood. It may be somebody you don't expect. You know, again, divorce can cause you emotionally to feel abandoned and neglected. Maybe it's not financially. Um, but most importantly, if we want to know how to include and bring children to Jesus, we got to remember that Jesus told us to become like a child to inherit the kingdom of God. We need to admit we're not in control. We're not God. God is actually God. We need to quit being shocked and offensive when the world doesn't revolve around us. We don't have control over all things. We are a child, and we submit to God because he is in control over all things. And then we turn and we accept God's care for us, which takes faith. It takes a lot of faith. You've got to have faith first in his immense love for you. And you got to have faith in his immense forgiveness of you. And both those two things, his immense love and his immense faith, excuse me, his immense love and his immense forgiveness of our sins were displayed on the cross. 
Jesus took every one of my sins and your sins and sins of kids and sins of the, against kids and became them on the cross. And then he made a public display of the enemy by rising from the dead and conquering death. And by faith in him, we get that new heart. We get his spirit, that same spirit, dwelling in our hearts so that we can have soft hearts, so that we don't have to have hard hearts, so that we can love kids around us and draw children to Jesus. So let me pray for us.